Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Hey, good morning, everybody. Really glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching, listening online. Good morning to our North uh, site this morning. Glad that you're with us. Welcome to week two on the Holy Spirit. Whether you are a person who has walked with Jesus for decades or for years or months, or you're joining us this morning and you are unsure of where you are on a spiritual journey, what I'm about to share again today will have direct relevance to your life and could actually change where you walk and how you think about life. I don't know if you've had the privilege of traveling. Travel is a privilege. And if you've traveled to Europe, one thing you'll know very quickly about Europe is the multiplicity of churches you will find in every single little town across Western and Eastern Europe. You will find hundreds of thousands of little churches at the center of little towns. And they tend to be old and stunning. I walked into one this year and it was like started in 1438. I didn't even know how to comprehend that as a North American But we know also when we travel the great cities of Europe, it's not just the towns that have churches, but at the center of the grand cities of Europe stand cathedrals and grand churches dedicated to the glory of God. In Rome, of course, the Vatican. In Paris, the Bleeding Heart of Christ or Notre Dame. In Venice, St. Mark's. If you go to England, York or Durham or in London itself, you have St. Paul's or Westminster. I was in Barcelona. I don't know if you've been to the lovely country of Spain, but I was going to see Gaudi's famous church. Church of the Holy Family, La Family Sacra Familia. And when you went there, I was expecting to get in, and there was a two day wait to get in the church because so many people wanted to get in. If you've ever been to Florence before, there's the famous church in the middle of the town, but to the side of the town is one of my favorite churches on earth. It's the Church of the Cross, and if you walk in, it's this magnificent ancient structure, and in the front of it, behind the altar, there are five or six columns of stained glass window that almost go into the heavens, and as the light is pouring in, there's a huge crucifix, a painted crucifix, reminding us of the death of Christ. In these churches, people like C.S. Lewis and Galileo and kings and saints and world leaders are buried. And as I love going to these moments, these places where history has happened, where people have talked about Jesus for a thousand plus years, I always stop though and I look. I look around at the hundreds of thousands of people entering in and out of these small and large but famous churches. And as I observe them, I continually realize one thing. They are tourists who've come to look at beauty They are here to view these places as museums because they rival the Louvre and they rival all these other great museums. But as I watch them, so very few people walk in to meet the one that they were built to point to. How do churches become like this? How did this happen where the great cathedrals and churches of Christianity have now become nothing less than beautiful historic moments and museums? There's much to that story, of course, but here is one large swath of how we ended up in this place. When the people that fill the magnificent and small buildings stop loving the scriptures, when people who gathered there stopped obeying the scriptures, when people who were gathering in those places stopped believing what it said and encountering the one the buildings were built for, when the people who were gathering there stopped living countercultural, spirit, spirit-filled lives, lives that look like Jesus, churches always end up becoming 
museums in the end. I was driving through the west end of Toronto to visit a friend of mine with my wife, and as I was traveling, I was in the south end of the city. I went past Young Street. I know that's impossible to believe us Easterners doing, but as I was going through, I almost started crying in the car, and my wife said, what's, what's wrong with you? I said, haven't you seen it? We've passed three churches in five minutes, and they're all condos now. There's no church left in the middle of these neighborhoods. See, how does this happen? How do buildings turn into yoga studios and no one seems to notice? And the real question we're asking is, what can reverse this? And I'm here to declare this morning this authority, with authority this morning this. His name is the Holy Spirit. As I shared last week, the Holy Spirit has done amazing things in the past. At every single moment, God has used his spirit to move the kingdom of God along. He is at every major event of holy history, and he has and is and will be bringing about shalom, a growing sense of the coming new heavens and new earth. But in the now, right now, in this moment, the Holy Spirit is doing very much, and he is inviting the church to do so much more. Now, as we learned together last week, he is the one that convicts us of our sin. He is the one who gives us the bad news before the good news. He also is the one who reveals Jesus for who he truly is, not who we want him to be. The Holy Spirit is the one that actually brings Jesus into our life. I use the image. He is like a husband who literally takes his bride and walks him or walks her over the threshold into this thing called born again. He is the one that possesses us. He is our seal, our deposit, our future guarantee. He is our mortgage payment for what is coming. The scriptures we found out last week called him our advocate, our helper, our friend, our intercessor. He helped shoulder and the pressures of life. And Jesus called him another friend just like him. The Holy Spirit is the one that puts Jesus into our lives. And here's the amazing thing. The Holy Spirit is the one that connects each one of us together if you are a Christian, but not just each other, that know, we who know each other. He connects us to every single Christian on earth at this moment, and he already connects us in this moment that with all those Christians who have died and are already in heaven. There is one body of Christ unified by the lifeblood and the glue of the Holy Spirit, and death itself cannot separate us because of his eternal work. Now, if you've met Jesus and you've accepted Jesus, and if you're born again, that is, that you are born from above, at that moment that we call in church circles conversion, in that moment, whether you know the exact time or not, in that moment, the scripture says that you were baptized into the Holy Spirit Maybe you come from a church that taught you that baptism of the Holy Spirit was something that you had to work hard for after conversion. No, that's called filling of the Spirit, and that can happen hundreds of times over your life. But right when you became a Christian, you were baptized, plunged, immersed, dipped, covered in the Spirit himself. It is the entrance to the whole thing called church. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, so it is with Jesus Christ, for we have all been baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether you're Jew Jews or Greeks or slave or free, we're all given the one spirit to drink. Economics and background do not stop the unity of the church. Anyone want to say amen to that? So when we were baptized into him, something else took place that we cannot forget. And many of us do forget. You personally, we as normal everyday people replaced 
the temple in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. You literally, not metaphorically, literally became the dwelling place in the temple of God. You are more significant than Moses' tabernacle. You are greater than Solomon and Herod's version of the temple because the Spirit of God literally lives in you. Like I preached last week in second service, we are possessed people and we love that we are possessed by another sentient being that is not us. We want that type of possession. We don't don't want the other type of possession. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know if you're a Christian that your body are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you've received from God? You're not your own. You've been bought at a, a high price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. There it is. It's that last statement and that last command and that last invitation and expectation that leads us to where we go today and actually becomes one of the great remedies to not seeing a church disappear and become dead or a museum. He says, you don't own yourself. We say, excuse me, I'm a North American. No, no, you don't own yourself. There is no rights in our movement because we have given ourselves to God. And he says, so you honor God with your body and you worship God with your life. See, now we get to the next amazing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Spirit of God in the Scriptures is called the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of life, and the Spirit of holiness. He is the one that allows us and helps us and moves us to do this honoring that we are obligated to do. And he helps us by his power, not our willpower, to relinquish ourselves to him willingly with joy. Remember, we were in John 14 last week and Jesus was telling his friends he was leaving and they couldn't believe it. But he promised them the Holy Spirit but notice what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit in John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. He's the Spirit of, what does it say? Truth. Verse 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Just stop and look at that. How does the Father and the Son make their home in broken, everyday, normal, boring people's lives? By the Holy Spirit. Verse 24, anyone who does not love me, Jesus says, will not obey my teaching. These words uh, you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Verse 26, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. See, the Holy Spirit is always about leading us into God's truth. You know the Holy Spirit is on the move in a local church when truth is loved and expected. Now, here's the question we need to ask this morning. Where is Jesus' teaching found? Where are all of God's stories and thoughts and his revelations and his commands and his promises found? Where is the apostles' teaching summary found? It is found in the scriptures. It is found in the written word of God. See, the Holy Spirit not only leads us, he teaches us, and he teaches us through the scriptures. Why? Because whether you know it or not, the Holy Spirit actually is the author of this book. There might be 66 books in this and numerous authors, but let me say again this morning, there is only one author behind all the authors, and his name is the Holy Spirit. 
2 Timothy 3.16, that famous verse that self-identifies the nature of Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching and, and rebuking and, and correcting and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture Old and New Testament, in their entirety, are given by God, inspired by God, and they are breathed out by the Spirit. That process, inspiration, is the work of the Holy Spirit by which God used the talents and the personality and the culture and the nuances and the backgrounds of the human authors to make up the Bible, his written word, to people. Now, everyone lean in. We're going to have a John Tom. I'm going to take my glasses off. Everyone ready? Okay. This is very important that you hear what I'm about to say this morning. And if you hear this, especially in church circles, you need to pay profound attention. When you start hearing people say in churches things like this, well, Jesus didn't talk about it, so it must be okay. Or Paul got that wrong. Or James lived 2,000 years ago, so he doesn't know what we know. Stop right there and pay attention. See, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is whom God the Father used to breathe out this book. So watch this. If James talked about it, or Moses talked about it, or Solomon, or John, or Luke, or Paul, or Jesus, when all of them spoke, Jesus was doing the talking because Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is his Spirit, and the Spirit authored this book. 66 books, oh yes, but there is one author. The Bible is the great work of the spirit of truth, revealing the truth about God, revealing the truth about us, and revealing the truth about our need. It is inspired, true, sufficient, and it tells us what we need to know about God and salvation and right living and eternal life, and it is clear it is not fuzzy. What is 2 Timothy 3.16? Could you go back to that verse? What does it say again? It says that we will be taught. This is how things are. This is right. This is wrong. It says that God will rebuke us. You think that is right. You feel that is right. You've been taught that is right. But I am telling you that is wrong and you must now turn. He corrects. He moves us like a 180 to say, you're looking this way. Could you just move that way. Let me correct you. And he trains us in righteousness that is living by the Spirit, that is looking like Jesus, that is to live a holy life. What does holiness mean? Holiness means to be separated out and to be without sin. The Holy Spirit always is leading us to God's truth. And the Holy Spirit is always pointing us to this book. And this is a profound lesson for us at C4 in this middle of our journey as we are praying for and seeing the growing signs of renewal, revival, and awakening. When the Holy Spirit in a church moves the strongest, when God begins to do the most unusual things, when people start converting from other faiths and people give up other lifestyles, when people begin to declare Jesus as Lord and Savior, when people start having dreams and visions and demons are regularly being cast out and he Healings start taking place right in the middle of the awe and what we would call the weirdness. We need to stop and remember that is when preaching is needed the most. 
In the middle of the supernatural, let us never forget that this is the ultimate source for our faith and our life and our practice. And here's something that church history and the scriptures teach us. When the Spirit of God is moving with great love and joy and power in a local church, the thirst and the willingness to read and the willingness to submit to and the love of the scriptures always goes through the roof. You want to know when revival is happening? It's not when people are falling over. That's just fine. It's when people start reading the Bible, loving the Bible, and can't put it down. Ephesians chapter 6 says this, that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. Never forget there's this understanding that this is a guaranteed place of encounter between God and his people. The Holy Spirit is always present, always speaking, always overshadowing these words. That is why the author of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 4.12. His powerful word is sharper than a surgeon's scalpel cutting through everything. Doubt and defense laying us open so we can what? Obey. Nothing or no one is impervious to God's word. We can't get away from it no matter what. See, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. He leads us and speaks to us through, informs us by the scriptures. He is the spirit of truth. And if you reject the scriptures, you reject the author, the father, and the son, and the spirit. Now, it's interesting when you get going on this, the next question you should be asking is, okay, John, if that is true then what does truth look like in everyday life? Is this just some great philosophical, intellectual, this is truth? Or is there something more? And see, that brings us to the second great work of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is not only the spirit of truth, he's the spirit of life, and he's the spirit of holiness. And here's when you know that the Holy Spirit is working really deeply in your life. He begins to change what we love. He begins to change our natural fondness. He begins to change what we care about, what we warm up to, what we are naturally friendly with. I want you to think in your mind of the piece of, or, or the style of food that you hate the most. Can you think about it? Just do this for a moment. I hate olives. I like olive oil. I hate olives. I know it's very contradictory. It's like tomato and ketchup. I get it. But I do not like olives. My children eat them like candy. I've never understood why they're okay. I love Indian food. My mother can't be in the presence of it. I remind her in heaven, all will be right, and she will be full of joy, and she'll be healed. So it's going to be fine. Now, I just want you to think. Think about the food that you hate the most. What you don't like, you don't want it in your mouth, you don't like smelling it. Turn to your neighbor right now, tell them that very quickly. In the north, do this too. Just turn. Quick, don't be Canadian. Turn. Just talk. What you do not like. If you say, I like all food, you're lying. Now, I want you to think about this. Some of you are like, I don't like kimchi. The Korean's going, are you joking? This is God's gift to eternity. Like, right? No, I want you to think about this. Imagine suddenly, seven days from now, you are given the food you detest. And you smell it, and you suddenly like it. And when you put it in your mouth, you have no texture problems, and you eat it, and it brings you great joy. You would be completely shocked. You'd say, I hated this, and now I love this. See, this is exactly what the Holy Spirit does. He moves into a life 
that has hostility towards God and he changes our love and our taste buds spiritually and our affections and he moves us to love something that we used to hate, ignore, or sort of wonder about. Now, some of you are going, well, John, I've been a Christian for a while, and though uh, some of my affections have changed, all my spiritual taste buds have not changed, I still like certain things. Let me give you another example. It's like walking into Panera or one of those restaurants that's a bakery, and as you walk in and you look at what you want to order, it suddenly shows you the calorie count beside the beautiful thing. So you look at it and you go, that scone is one million calories. And if I eat it, I will be in trouble. So the Holy Spirit begins to change our affections towards holiness and or, or at the same time, because he's the spirit of truth, he shows us the danger and the implications of the affections we still wrestle with. Does that make sense? Now this is critical Because the spirit of truth leads us into truth, and then when we embrace truth, truth has to be lived out of us, and that's called holiness. Now, if there's one chapter in the Bible that summarizes the great work of the Holy Spirit in holiness, it's Romans 8. Turn there if you've got your Bible today. In Romans 7, Paul talks about living a Christian life, but not under the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes these words in Romans 7, 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, and I hate what I do. For what I do, do not do, uh, for what I do not do, the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I do. And I keep on doing this. Anyone want to say amen to that yet? Verse 24, yeah, yeah, true. Mm. Uh, What a wretched man or woman I am for us. Who will rescue me from this uh, body that's subject to death? Paul says, listen, I'm living this Christian life, but every time I try doing this by myself under my own, ready, willpower, that's how I end up. Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ. So we go, okay, Paul, well, that sort of makes sense, and and Jesus will deliver me. I suppose that's heaven. And Paul goes, no. If you're a Christian today, victory and hope and holiness are not just future things. They can be experienced in large parts now. Paul says, no more defeat, no more living a powerless Christian life, no more living in the shadows, no more hiding secrets, no more confession without life change. I have shown you from my own life, when we rely on our own power, we end up miserable and seeing no holiness. But when we are relying on the Spirit of God, everything changes. Now, here's what's amazing if you read Romans. In chapter 1 through chapter 7, Paul references the Holy Spirit possibly three times. In this chapter, he references the Holy Spirit 19 times. So this is the epicenter for the conversation about the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, let me start with our position. I am made good. I am in good standing. I've been made righteous. I was guilty, but I'm not now guilty. I am acquitted because through Jesus' work, his death and resurrection on the cross, I am not guilty because he took the blame and shame for me. So Paul says, just so you know, you're not condemned. But then at that moment, he introduces us to the Holy Spirit and he removes the language of defeat. Because... Verse 2, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and the law of death. 
Now, the Spirit of God, his title here, his name here, is Spirit of Life. This goes right back to Genesis 1-2, where the Spirit was over the nothingness of creation, and through the Spirit, God brought nothing to something. And so the same, when we became Christians, God took nothing and made it something. He said, let there be light in our life, and there was light, the light of salvation. Now, he says, look, you know this if you have grown up religious, He says, the law by itself shows us our sin. It's stirred up by our sin, and we sin more and more and get more condemned. But the Holy Spirit brings us forgiveness of sin, and he brings us the opposite of sin. He and he alone lets us know we're not condemned, and he and he alone gives us the power not to walk under sin anymore. For, verse 3, what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by us, the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not living according to the flesh but according to the spirit. He basically says this, Jesus came under the power of the Holy Spirit, lived a perfect life we were supposed to live in because of his perfect life and his perfect death, we get forgiveness and we are entered into a new community and the entrance into that new community and the mark of that new community is the Holy Spirit. And then he says these words. Here we go. Everyone ready? Those who live according to the flesh have their mindset set on what the flesh desires. They want the thousand million dollar scone, right? Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by flesh is death. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, and it cannot do so. It is impossible. Those who are of the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Those without Jesus have a very distinct pattern and worldview and mindset. They do not crave the things of God, and they do not crave the God of Scripture. They may be very religious, but they do not crave grace. In the grand sense, without the Spirit, humans are left to spiritual death, hostility towards God, an inability to submit to God, and there is no want for God's love, and there is no God's love in their life. Paul says that there is two conflicts. You have the flesh and and you have the spirit. And those who live according to the flesh do not want the things of the spirit. Now this brings us to a very critical moment in my message this morning and for us as a church. It is one thing to talk about this intellectually. It is another thing to stop and ask, well, what does a life look like that is marked by the flesh? And what does a life look like that is marked by the Holy Spirit? See, What does the flesh, sinfulness, look like in my everyday life? Well, Paul, in one of his earliest books, has done a great summary on this. Many of you know it. It's Galatians 5.19. He says the acts of the sinful nature, they're obvious. Sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage selfish ambition, dissension and faction, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. You want to understand what a world looks like without walking with the Spirit, that's it. Now let me take a moment again, I've done it before, to preach through this. The first three words refer to sexuality. Those first three words. 
The third word, sexual immorality, the first one is the word porneia. We get our modern word pornography from there. This word is the catch-all phrase for any sexual act that the Bible forbids, where God says, this is not how I have defined it. Any sexual act outside of marriage is formed by God in Genesis. See, for Moses and for Jesus and for Paul, remember, under the Spirit, all the biblical writers have a sexual starting point. It is Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. That is God's want and design and gift. And he says, this is not about inclination. He says, but if you regularly participate in those acts which I have forbidden, that is sexual immorality. That is the flesh. And then he says, oh, by the way, you religious people think you're better than all the people struggling with sexual stuff. By the way, idolatry is just as bad. If you worship any other God or any other thing other than the God of Scripture, that is sin. Now, in the Christian worldview, when a person, even a sincere person, worships any other God, it's idolatry. When a Hindu, in sincerity, worships Ganesh or Shiva or Vishnu or Brahma, when a Buddhist teaches karma or reincarnation uh, and teaches self-instruction you know, through nirvana, idolatry. When a Jehovah Witness, meeting right now at this moment, says that they are worshiping Jesus but teach that Jesus is not God, bite the Michael, the archangel, idolatry. When Mormons who are gathering at this moment who sound and look very much like us declare that Jesus is just one of millions of gods, idolatry. Any form, sincere or not, of worshiping a God that is not of Scripture, whether it is right in the person's mind or not, is idolatry. The second form is the secular form, where we actually begin to take the gifts of God, sex, money, and power, and we replace God with them. Any attempt to remove God from his position and his worship is idolatry. The third group, he says, oh, by the way, there's a sexual conversation, there's the religious conversation, and then let me talk to all the people involved in spirituality. He says, if you're involved in witchcraft, that is sin. And we're not just talking about witchcraft in the formal sense. See, beneath all our technology and our science and our medicine, the average person in our culture is involved in all sorts of things. You know this. Some of you are involved in this. Many of you know friends, tarot cards, psychic readings, crystals, the new age, witchcraft, black and white witchcraft, horoscopes, Ouija board. It's all idolatry. Any attempt by a human gaining spiritual insight spiritual power or spiritual healing other than through the scriptures and the spirit of God is idolatry. Oh, I just went to my chiropractor and they did Reiki. Idolatry and witchcraft. See, what we need to understand is what is the source of the power you're invoking? Paul says those who are walking of the flesh, there is a sexual conversation, there's a formal religious conversation, there's a spiritual conversation, and then there is an interpersonal conversation. He says hatred is a sign of the flesh. Now, hatred has three meanings in the Bible. Number one, I hate you because you're rich. I hate you because you're poor. It's economic. Poor people hating rich people, rich people hating poor people. Hatred. The second is this, I hate you because you're black. I hate you because you're Latino. I hate Racism is involved in this word hatred. The third one is this, it is a hatred just between people. He says that is of the flesh. He says the fourth one is discord. You cause rivalry all the time. You have a quarrelsome spirit. He says then there's jealousy and envy. You always want more. You actually covet what people have. And then he says there's fits of rage, not being self-controlled, marked by anger. And then he calls out all of North America, selfish ambition. 
where you actually think life is about you, your personal song is it's all about me, and even when you're doing good things, behind in the motive level, you're working things out so it actually ends up good for you. Dissensions, you're at the heart of disputes. You cause disunity, strife, revolt, rebellion marks you at work, in your family, in your life. Factions is a very interesting word. It's where we get the word heresy from. False teaching, false religions, false unity. Then drunkenness is this overarching statement talking about those things that intoxicate us. And as I've preached many times, it is never okay for a follower of Jesus to get drunk or buzzed. It is never okay for us to be high or stoned or tipsy or a little under the table. This is not of our movement, whether for a moment or a lifetime. Now, of course, then there's this last thing, orgies which is a word you didn't expect to hear at church this morning. But is the old word saying whoring and wild, it is when it's the party lifestyle. Now Paul comes along and he says, look, that, and when you read that statement, we're all in trouble. And he says in Galatians 5.20, and I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not saying those who occasionally stumble. This is not saying that those who are addicted and trying to work it out, those who lapsed or inclined, but those that live like this, celebrate this, habitually behave like this, do not know God, are not owned by the Spirit, and don't have eternal life. Now Paul comes along in Romans 8 and he says this, verse 9. You, however, you're not of the realm of the flesh. You're in the realm of the Spirit now. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Jesus is in you, even though your body is subject to death through sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. See, the Holy Spirit is present, and as we allow him to fill us more and more, he will give us the ethos of Jesus. And what's the great ethos of Jesus? Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly. We can live under the influence and direction and the power of the Holy Spirit. We can walk in freedom. We're no longer like we used to be where we had to say yes because there was no power in us. We can walk away from the list I just read over a lifetime more and more when we invoke the power of the Holy Spirit and say, I am no longer going back to the life I used to be involved in. I will ask for the Spirit of God now to help me move forward. And then Paul says in verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, who raised Christ from the dead, he will also give life to your mortal bodies because the spirit of God lives in you. He basically says this, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is in you and he's going to give you power to live a holy life now. And when you die, that is not the end. He is going to physically raise you back to life and death will never own you. 1 Corinthians 6.14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. He will raise us also. Your resurrection is guaranteed. So he says in verse 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, at C4 in Durham, we have an obligation. It is not to the flesh or to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We actually now have the ability to walk in freedom. We must live in the truth of this freedom. The obligation must be followed, but we will only be able to do it in the power of the Spirit. Because when we don't call upon the power of the Spirit in temptation, we end up like Paul in the earlier chapter saying, what a wretched Christian I am. Everything I don't want to do, I end up doing. And then he ends with these amazing words. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you a slave, so you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, daughtership. 
And by him, through the Holy Spirit, we cry to God, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Paul says we've been adopted by the Father through the Holy Spirit. Now, it's amazing where this letter was written to, because this is written to Christians in Rome. And when we hear the word adoption, whether you've been adopted or not, we have a cultural lens of what that means. But adoption, especially in Rome, had a very different meaning. At this time, I don't know if you know Roman history, Julius Caesar adopted a man who became Augustus. And he adopted him, and in the adoption, his decision was that his adopted child would become Caesar and would have all the rights and benefits and authority and would actually take on the character of Caesar to rule the world. Now, that's the adoption I don't want. But a Roman citizen who's a Christian hearing this would suddenly go, oh my goodness, adoption in this culture had more authority and privilege than biological authority and privilege. In our culture, many people who are adopted struggle deeply, A, because of abandonment, legitimate, but also they always feel they never... In this culture, adoption was the opposite. It is the greatest thing to be adopted into a royal family because you will actually end up looking like the one who adopted you and you get the whole family and the whole house. So the Spirit of God says to us broken everyday people that we're adopted... And we're going to start reflecting the one we're adopted into. And then Paul writes these words that if you've done church for a while, they've lost their power for you. But they are so profound, they're earthquake-like. We get to call God Almighty, the great I Am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one where Moses had to take his shoes off in his presence, the eternal one. We get to call the uncreated one Abba. Father, dear Father, Daddy. Oh, Jews did call God Father, but Jesus was the one who said we get to call him Dad. And how do we know that the eternal one is this to us? How, do we just will it? Oh, I hope I... No. It says that the Spirit of God who's possessing you, who was sent by Christ, will tell your spirit the core and the gut of who you are. No, no, no. You are a child of the Most High. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of life. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of holiness. The Holy Spirit is your everything if you're a Christian. Like I said last week, the Holy Spirit is the only one who allows you to see Jesus, and he's the only one who allows you access to the Father. The Holy Spirit is the identity giver It says in these scriptures, we're not condemned by God. We're not controlled by our sin. We're filled with God's own spirit. We've been bought and covered. See, we see the great loving work of the triune God for us. Paul cries out in Romans 8 that we have a loving, calling, electing father. We have a substituting, caring, dying, sacrificial brother. And we have a residing, empowering comforter who is the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. He says that we're adopted, that we're his children. He later says we're co-heirs with Christ. And all of us, all of this gives us two things. Two things that are fought for, literally in wars, and they are longed for, and poems are written about it, and songs fantasize over it, and it is this. It gives you security rooted in a God-given identity. Security and identity 
what the world and every individual on earth is dying for, and the Spirit of God gives it freely to anyone who'd want to meet Jesus. And the implication of this security is this, that our identity is not rooted in what we did or who we are or our background. The identity and the security is rooted in another person's loving work for us that we could never earn or even think about or imagine, but is given anyways because our God is what? Love. Your identity by the Spirit is rooted and secure, and it's all because of Him. Not only is He the great identity giver, He's the truth imparter. And the question I would need to ask myself as I did this week preparing this message, I'd have to ask every single person here today and all of you in the north, all of you watching online is this. Are you even willing to say these dangerous words? Holy Spirit, I am really open to truth. I want to be owned by this book. I want to be formed by this book. I, I, I want you to lead me into truth. I want to love your scriptures because I know that when I love them, I will actually end up looking like you. I don't worship this book, but I want to know the author so much. I, lead me into all truth, no matter where the truth takes me, no matter the cost. See, we sing songs in this church. We're about to sing one, at least at this site where we ask for the Holy Spirit to come and we ask for the Holy Spirit to lighten and we ask for the Holy Spirit to, to show up. And, and when he shows up, one of the very first things he does is he hovers over these words like he did in creation, like he did at the temper, tabernacle in the temple. And he says, if you want love and you want healing, time may not heal all things, I do. If you want these things, oh, how you must love and be formed by my truth no matter the cost. Do you want C4 in 25 years? Or do you want this building in 30 years from now just to be another building? Or do you want it to be filled with people who are deeply set free and love Jesus? Well, then be people of the book because the author of the book is inviting us into all truth. He's the spirit of truth and he's the spirit of holiness. We are called as Christians to live the most countercultural lives in how we talk about sexuality, and how we act, how we talk about race and politics, how we treat other human beings, even those who disagree us. We are, we are called out of wrong supernaturalism and wrong idolatry. See, he says, no, 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 no. You don't need to do that anymore. And you go, oh, John, that's not true. No, the scriptures declare you, I, we don't need to sin anymore in the sense that think about the power that is in us. It's not myth. It's not utopian idealism. Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you doubt that the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead can overcome the death in your life? He can raise broken parts of your life back to life. See, we reject the idea in this church that God helps those who help themselves. That is a lie from the pit of hell or a very twisted, very egocentric person. No, no. We declare that when our flesh offers us our history, in that moment we need to say, Holy Spirit, I ask now for your power to move in a different direction. And it's not done in a moment. It's not like getting zapped and everything's okay and instant Christian. no. It's like walking up a mountain and every single time this. But here's the difference between you and your neighbor that doesn't know Jesus. They have to say yes to sin and you don't need to do it anymore. Because the spirit of God is in you. What's the famous verse that we love quoting, especially in this church? 
2 Corinthians 3.17, now where the Spirit, where the Lord is, so now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, what? There is freedom. Here's the question, do you even want his freedom? Because when I read the list of what he wants to free me from, I'm not sure if I want it. So we sing for revival, and we ask for thousands of conversions, and we ask God to do amazing things, and we ask for his profound move, and then he comes and says, but I have to free you from the things you love. The world, by the way, calls our freedom bondage and calls our freedom backwards and actually says that we are against people, we are medieval, and we are anti-freedom. But for us who have had a new heart given to us and new eyes given to us, we begin to understand that his invitation is not the wagging of a finger, but a loving father showing us a better life. He is giving us better things to love than what we used to. Let me ask you this question. Would you be willing to say to the Holy Spirit, I not only want to know your truth, I want to live a holy life. I want a version of your life, and I actually want a version of your freedom. Because that moment of invitation, and it's perpetual over our lifetime, is what really the Spirit of God does in a life. When He begins to change how you treat your spouse or your kids, when He leads you to forgive a friend who did stupid things or an enemy, when you lay down your money or your sexuality, where you lay down your religious experiences. And you say, no, 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 I want freedom defined by the Spirit. Jesus and the Father, the God that we love in this church and is exalted, lives in us by his Spirit. And his Spirit brings us truth and holiness. You want to know how not to become a museum? You want to know how we don't follow the path of where our forebears decided to go? We say as a church, we say as a people, we say as a person, I will not grieve the Spirit of God. Lord Jesus Christ, Father, first of all, and I know it's Sounds like the right thing to say, but we have to thank you that you called us out of darkness to yourself. And we have to thank you for the death of your son because without that covering, couldn't even have this conversation. But Holy Spirit, forgive us for grieving you. Forgiving us, forgive us for not loving your scripture, reducing your scripture, saying things are okay when the scriptures are clear they're not. Forgive us. We want to be people of truth. Lead us into all truth. And then our great prayers, oh, change our affections. Change our love. Nothing less than the reverse of Galatians 5. That list. Come do a work that is impossible, but you say is possible. Last prayer. May the church be marked with joy and love and excitement in the freedom the Spirit gives. 
So in the name of God, the Father, as one of your elders and pastors and leaders, and also as a co-journeyer with you, in the name of God, the Father, and God, the Son, may now the Holy Spirit be poured out on you, and you, and you. Not so you just have some weird experiences, though that's fine, so that we are marked and we are different. We pray this for the glory of God. Amen. 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 Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.